0: Welcome to Podwalk. I'm your host, Radhika Saveri, Professor of Practice at the Southern Methodist University. And this is a podcast conversation with industry experts on brand, consumer, and human-centered design. If you'd like to watch the video of this recording, tune in to our YouTube channel called Podview. Joining me today is Steve Miff, President and CEO of Parkland Center for Clinical Innovation. It's an affiliation with Parkland Health, which is one of the largest and most progressive safety net hospitals in the country, one of the largest, which is an awesome place to be. Today, we are going to talk about human-centered innovation. We're going to talk about innovation in healthcare and the consumer journey that helps you in coming to an effective value-based care for consumers. Welcome, Steve. Well, it is such a pleasure to have you
1: here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So, earlier we were talking about your personal journey moving to the United States as a child with your parents, and both your parents are physicians. Um, I'm curious as to how that journey shaped your beliefs as you started in healthcare and since then have moved to Parkland.
1: Yeah, I I feel privileged that I've been able to see life through different lenses, uh, not only geographically, but from a social and economic perspective. And by seeing not only what the challenges that somebody can go through their life, but uh, the ability to overcome some of those challenges, feel both blessed and lucky. um, And it takes so many different things to come together. So by having experienced... That by moving to the United States and having to start life over and uh, trying to do certain things that uh, initially were challenging but overcoming those just gave me such a different appreciation for what a lot of our neighbors are going through. Um, And the passion that I have is how do we understand that more deeply so we can connect with themselves better, with their families, connect with others that are supporting them more holistically. So then ultimately we can help them overcome those challenges and be as as productive, as, as happy as they can be.
0: Yeah, and you've experienced some of that through this journey um, yourself and, and your parents as well being physicians have, have uh, coupled into into that journey. So let's talk a little bit more about your personal belief and just dig a little bit deeper. You know, I've been reading about you and one of the quotes um, and thinking that I've read about is your belief that to effectively deploy value-based care and sustain it, we have to focus on health as well as health care. Can you expand a little bit more about that and help us understand what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, I think we've, and uh, uh, this has evolved over time, but we've designed our healthcare systems uh, to be full of heroes. And we do that really well. And what I mean by that is we're so good when somebody is sick, if somebody has a need, we, we step in, we use technology, we use the expertise, we have one of the best systems in the world to be able to rescue people the challenges that will come in at the end when somebody does need to be rescued uh, versus trying to figure out how do we move upstream to help people earlier so they can self be part of that journey and they might not need to be rescued to begin with Um, and i heard the story that that i want to share that it, it it really resonated to me. And uh, this is a group uh, of of hikers that uh, were going through some uh, uh, fairly rough territory and they got to a river and they were trying to figure out, well, what do we do next? How do we cross the river? And all of a sudden, here comes somebody uh, swimming down the river, struggling. Uh, So they jumped in and they they rescued that person. They they brought him to ship. They saved them. Enough about, uh, you know, 20 minutes later, here comes somebody else. They jump in again. And they, they, they rescued that person. Um, and they say, well, what's going on? Why, why are why are people keep coming down? So they, they walk uh, uh, a couple miles uh, upstream the, the river. Uh, and they see that there was a little bit of a shallower spot. The river was still, the current was still strong. But people were trying to cross the river because that was the only way to get, Across, That was
0: a problem.
1: And a few yeah. were just not strong enough or the circumstances would create where they yeah. would just be swept downstream. so um, they went back uh, and they came uh, they got some you know friends funding and they came back and they built a bridge um, and to, for people to safely cross that river and not need to be rescued. Downstream. downstream I think what we're doing in healthcare is very similar so how do we build that bridge mm-hmm. upstream how do we understand why do people or when they need to cross that uh, the river how do we bring the resources there so there's less need to be able to rescue but there's that opportunity to actually keep people safe healthy, healthy. to begin with
0: and I think to that point you know we are starting to hear a lot about holistic aspect of healthcare. And we hear about solutions which are like a band-aid to a problem, which is exactly what you just described with your beautiful example, very easy to visualize this example that you just shared with us. And instead of that, um, you know, we, we are hearing that, the, that healthcare is looking at different parts of a person. They're looking at it holistically, but what is causing the problem, the root cause of the problem, whether it is mental, physical, genetics, or even barriers of care so that you can contextualize what care looks like for a person and how are you going to deliver it in a sustainable way. And just sort of looking at all these pieces of information before you provide care. So can you talk a little bit about where do you think healthcare is moving in this regard and um, also why, why is it important to give holistic
1: I think you, you, you just said it. Uh, if we're going to be able to move upstream, we need to understand people differently. We need to understand them deeper. We need to understand those root causes. When we rescue, we're faced with what are those very immediate clinical needs, because we need to address those, and we need to address them at that particular moment. As we move upstream, we need to understand the whole person we need to understand not only their life story, we need to understand the decisions that they make, how they make the decisions, we need to understand the support that they have in place to be able to, if we're going to try to engage them and ask individuals to be more actively in their own Care, to
0: accept that solution. To
1: accept the solution. We need understand to understand that. that information better. And you're right, it gets to that root cause and then we can actually identify what the root cause is and intervene. An, an example that really stuck with me, I was doing a presentation in New York um, with uh, a, the, the topic was focused on population health. And the topic specifically was around chronic diseases, whether it's diabetes, asthma, etc and one of the surgeons in the room uh, was an orthopedic uh, trauma surgeon um, raised his hands like let me tell you a story and he said a couple months ago i had a 14 year old come to the emergency room with a gunshot wound to the chest and said we did everything that we could for hours and unfortunately we lost him said I was walking towards the waiting room when I knew his mother was waiting. And I was dreading what and how I'm gonna tell her that she just lost her 14-year-old son. And he said, as I was approaching the waiting room, she did not know who who I was, but she could sense. She stood up. And I got close, Um, I gathered my words and I said, ma'am, I'm Dr. So-and-so took care of your son, but unfortunately he died from the gunshot wound to the chest. And he said, she looked straight at me and said, Yes, that's my son, but he died because of asthma.
0: What did she mean by that?
1: Yeah. No, are you so and so? said yes. It's like, no, your son came in a few hours earlier, got shot in the, the chest, and he he died. He looked and me again said, he did not die because of that, he died because of asthma. And he said, how? She said, about a year ago, I lost my job, my son had asthma, he was very active at school playing football, but I couldn't really take care of him anymore. I couldn't really afford all the medication. Couldn't take him to the, to the doctor regularly. So his asthma got worse to a point where he was not allowed or not able to participate in the football program anymore. So after school, he was alone. I had to go to jobs and to try to keep uh, food on the table. Said so he, over time, got involved with the wrong crowd. And that got worse and worse. And here we are today. So that not die because of the gunshot wood to the chest she he up, died because of asthma yeah it's erect right so when we talk about understanding the root cause and the i know this is an extreme story but that's what it is it's how do we actually you know whether help that single mom yeah. retain a job, or have other a transition? How do we help a son, even if she does go through that transition, be able to have access to those medications, yes. to be able to know even how do I manage that, that chronic condition? So those downstream things do not happen.
0: And for that, you have to understand all the different facets of a person. That's what right. is going on in their life, everything from physical, mental, the genetics that they may have, asthma, for, for, for instance, um, and just the role the society plays in providing the care. So it's not just healthcare, but it's also society that provides that care. What are the challenges that you see as you as you deliver this healthcare in in a holistic way?
1: Several, unfortunately, but I think they're not insurmountable. Um, One is to be able to have access to the the data. Um, We're really good at understanding and having access to clinical data, even though it's still somewhat fragmented. I think as a society, we're really good at being able to make decisions off of that. But to to really have a stable stool, let's say, I think you need three more legs. And this is where, from a data perspective, it gets more challenging. We need to understand a person's life. And the the asthma story it sort of touched a little bit on that, but you know, what are some of those key challenges that people have as they're going through life? Whether, you know, do they have access to vehicles? Is it is the neighborhood walkable? Does, do the resources compete for to be able for the healthcare where they have to put food on the table or a roof over their head? So those life challenges- Because
0: they're are, thinking of other priorities. They're not just thinking about uh, their health, uh, and especially if it's not an immediate factor of health that is of concern. So there's so many different factors that you have to, variables that you have to.
1: That's exactly right. If I have the choice between putting food on the table tonight for my kids versus taking my medication, I'm gonna put food on the table and I'm gonna worry about my health later. Tomorrow. Yeah, so there's this competing life resources that if not addressed, they're not going to enable that individual to actually be able to take care of their health. That's number two. Number three is the the, the mental behavioral status. Um, we have post-pandemic, I think, a tsunami of challenges that been just even more amplified by what we've experienced during COVID. But that ability to concurrently deal with both physical and mental health mm-hmm. It's a key component. We are not fully understanding or have enough resources to address that. And the fourth is we're not good at healthcare to understand how people make choices, how people make decisions. Um, So that's the other thing. One key piece is even the capacity or ability to self care. But then in consumer products, we've studied, we know really well how people make purchasing decisions. In healthcare, we absolutely do not. And that I think is that fourth leg of the stool that if we make, Progress, so we better understand what is the data, yeah. how to collect it, how do we merge this information to be able to do that personalization at scale. Then we can actually start to figure out how do we can connect the yeah. different entities across the community to be able to use that in a way that helps an individual.
0: Yeah, and I think what you're saying is absolutely true, and uh, you know, that's something that I've been thinking about from a marketing standpoint as well. there are many industries where we know consumer purchase journey, especially CPG, for instance. We know what drives purchase. We know preferences. We know if someone likes chocolate ice cream versus vanilla ice cream. We know the propensity of someone buying a product. And we have collected all this data over time, which helps us understand if someone is planning on buying or willing to buy a product or if they're not. And I'm curious as to how this knowledge-based data that you all have collected in healthcare how is that being used in healthcare to predict outcomes? Um, because clearly you have been collecting this data over time as well. How, how do y'all understand patient journey, kind of similarly to how we would understand consumer journey in uh, the world of CPG, let's say, which is familiar to, to most of us? How do you guys go about understanding patient journey?
1: So to answer that, I'll go a little bit upstream myself. And I'll say when uh, when I grew up, you mentioned uh, both my parents are physicians. I remember specifically actually going on home mm-hmm. visits with them. So my dad would do house calls. And it was just fun as a kid to go along and all that. But one thing that I constantly remember is how connected and how well he knew those families. Because he was not just treating the the mom or the dad, he was treating the the kids, stream the grandparents. He had a knowledge of the context of what was important. Right, because he knew it's like, well, there's a wedding coming up, and you know, grandpa needs hip surgery, but it's gonna wait. Better manage it with medication and some physical therapy because he wants to be able to dance at the wedding, and he can't, you know, if we're gonna do surgery, it's gonna take longer. Yeah. All those little factors about their life that he knew. And as, I think that's so powerful. But it's not scalable. It's
0: not scalable.
1: So I think to me is how do we use data and information to be able to bring those insights to healthcare so we can understand individuals, understand their families and do that at scale. And that's where I think the power of information and data can really play out. Specifically how we've tried to use it in healthcare to date is um, we created this this concept of no-die patient. is sort of how do we actually know and can we experiment and try to bring all these different components together. So we created um, and aggregated community data and information at the most granular level possible. And that sort of ended up being the block group level to be able to understand across a whole geography what are those life factors that are challenging or not mm-hmm. for for different individuals. Yeah. Be able to take that every single patient and daily geomap their address and reverse geomap. And now attribute the characteristics of their block to each of their personal health record. So now we have their health record mm-hmm. and their history Now we have much better understanding and knowledge what their environment uh, is dealing with, what they're actually uh, having to deal in their day life and creates a much more robust set of information. So you're
0: starting to use this? Yes. You're starting to use So it's like taking that concierge service that we had growing up. We had the same thing in India where we had that sort of concierge service with a doctor knowing the 360 view of your situation and then prescribing treatment above medication, That's which right. would include lifestyle changes. That's right. Right. Because oftentimes you hear this from, um, from people that people fear, there are many that fear that the human touch is likely to be lost as we go down the path of personalized content and especially personalized care in, in healthcare um, using data. And it's not quite the same as you would think of in other industries where you're using personalized information to generate content for, oh, I don't know, if someone is buying a product at retail or grocery store and you're using personalized content. It's not quite the same as, as personalization in, in healthcare, but it's important because on the flip side of the coin, we are still trying to provide that personalized care, to your point, to every individual for which you need to know all these different factors, this 360-degree view. So how would you say you're balancing the human touch with the data that you have been collecting and, and, and still having this personalization in your, in your care?
1: I think that the data and the information can further drive personalization, and actually, the way we're looking at it is can enable that frontline care provider, whether it's a physician or a nurse, to spend more meaningful time with the individual and the patient by knowing that, that information versus focusing more on the screen of a computer where they need to enter the, the information. And specifically, we use this data. To and actually use machine learning and and unsupervised methods to understand are there unique clusters of patients that have a lot of these characteristics in common? Again, not only their medical history, their mental, behavioral, health needs and status, their life challenges and what's really interesting when we looked across the, the dallas county population uh, there are eight unique clusters that actually emerged statistically of people they're very similar yeah. which is which is very encouraging because with eight you can do something if it was a hundred it would have been a lot more difficult it's challenging challenging and a, a very specific then is like the question is okay so how, how do you use this um, one of the clusters one of the subgroups were folks that had a fairly significant medical complexity, meaning they were diabetic, they also had hypertension, and some had early stages of chronic kidney disease because those chronic conditions were being managed. They also typically had a higher need Uh, for use, mental behavioral health services, and based on their location and geography, they had access challenges to be able to come to the the clinics. So one specific thing that the health system was actually able to, to do with that information, they said, well, why don't we actually create clinics called the Integrated Practice Units, okay. where we bring providers together into one location that when we actually have a chance to interact with one of these, these, these patients, we can address their diabetes, we can address their hypertension, we can either physically there or with telehealth bring in mental behavior health consultations to make those available and start to do screening for early chronic kidney disease or, or other components and have social workers that can actually understand and refer them to support services if and when they have challenges, whether it's access to transportation or daycare for their kids or- So
0: that's, that's that holistic- the That's the holistic aspect uh, that we talked about sorry. earlier, that 360 degree view um, and also personal, personalized. That's right.
1: So you can redesign the health system to make it easier for people to do the right, the right thing. Because right now it's like healthcare is very sequential, right? You go for one appointment to one specialist and the next and the next and, and it takes time.
0: And that can take time. And months.
1: somebody who works, you know, um, and might not have only one vehicle and have a child that might not have You're access to daycare, you know, that might become a challenge if it's an eight to five uh, physician office uh, yeah. type of visit. Well,
0: that sounds so intriguing. How far do you think we are? from this integrated practice that's well we're
1: piloting it and it looks like it's working you have to to really understand both the uh, resources that are required to sustain and scale and understand then the impact that that's making to be able to justify those type of investments so so the encouraging part is that we're actively piloting this that we're using data in meaningful ways yeah. to be able to apply it because data can is only as good as being useful I always always say that if you know yeah. otherwise it's just it, fun math and it, it, then it's interesting it's but, but if you don't use figures, it that's yes, exactly that that's exactly developing. right. So, so we're making progress. Um, have, you know, um, have we gotten everywhere? No. I think the, the elusive part, it's still that behavioral, it's how people make decisions, And that's still a ways to, I think, uh, to, to go how it's being applied to healthcare.
0: Yeah. And, and I was going to ask you that, you know, this is it's a billion dollar question for almost all uh, data that is collected, whether it's in the healthcare industry or any other industry is garbage in, garbage out. And so how do you avoid that garbage in in order to ensure that you're getting good data that is usable, that is uh, scalable, um, and um, using that to generate even more more data? Which leads me to my next question. You know, you talked about machine learning. Are you using generative AI?
1: Uh, we're starting to experiment with it. So the, the, uh, yes, but in a very controlled way. And I'll, I'll, I'll explain uh, why. And to your first point, and part of the, uh, regenerative uh, AI in the large language model, it is the core of it is what is the, the data that's you leveraging for that, so garbage in, garbage out. Um, we just completed a hackathon uh, with a team, uh, about 18 data scientists, um, focusing on workforce violence. Uh, it's it's a huge problem where frontline staff are being assaulted during their, their shift by patients, and it's, it's just, you know, it's a whole other topic, but it is demoralizing, it's having people actually leave healthcare in even uh, larger numbers. So we thought there's a way to hopefully predict uh, what the propensity or the the situation is, what that could escalate to occur. Um, And because this data is required for so many different sources, uh, our team spent six months actually curating the data, analyzing the data really understanding the validity of the data, stitching the data together. The hackathon was two days. So building the model took two days, but ensuring that you have the right data, that that data is accurate, that data is valid, okay. that took six months. <laughs> that's right. So I would say the same thing with regenerative AI and large language models. Um, it's you know a couple-fold. How do you ensure that the information that you're using is reliable? Because if you're going to make life and death decisions on it, it needs to be that yeah, way. Especially so that's healthcare. Right. So that's one. And then the other one is still there's a big question about privacy and access and PHI type information, when you expose your health system, private data, where is that gonna to go to? So there are challenges you know, to be addressed as, re- as relates to that. So I think it has tremendous potential. I think it's here to stay. It's only gonna evolve. It's so
0: exciting to hear all the stuff that you are talking about yeah. because as users of healthcare, this, this is the world we would want to live in to have that integrated healthcare approach uh, where we're not struggling to make appointments over months and really understanding the root cause rather than having that band-aid over a problem and then it resurfacing again and again your the example that you shared earlier about uh, the, the 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 downstream people that were being saved rather than building a bridge. Um so that's a very exciting place to be and uh, you know I'd love to hear a little bit more about you know how do you how do you measure impact as you're going through all of this, as you're going through the collection of data for that for effective value based service that you're providing.
1: Yeah, and sometimes really passionate about because without impact, without an ROI, it, it's hard to really make the case like what do you expand, do you do more, do you... So I think it's a it's a key component. I also big proponent and advocate that you need to figure out what you're going to measure at the front end not at the back end. So you yes. need to design it the, the the right way. Should we just uh, ask to co-chair a committee for the the North, the, the Texas non-medical drivers of health focusing on impact measurements. So sort of that's something that being very involved in. Um, but it, it comes back to, to what we talked about, about having the, the, the right data and applying that in, in meaningful ways. And I think we oftentimes use the challenges in order to just either say, well, you know, it's too hard to do or we're limited while we're doing it. And I always believe that you approach every problem with we can do it if versus we cannot do it because. And oftentimes there's a journey where you start with more process related. Elements and you count, for example, um, if you're trying to uh, help individuals with their food needs because that's an impediment to their ability to care for themselves, to afford medication, etc. First thing you might be measuring how you actually, how many individuals can you screen? Then how many you navigate? How many for how often do you need to touch base with them? You need to be able to identify, well, how long does it take to resolve that need? So so it's much more of a process thing before you actually get to understanding, okay, by doing that, the reason I was doing it, I was trying to help them better manage their diabetes and a downstream effect of that is there are the less diabetic related visits to emergency department and by when that occurs and i can measure specifically what that has then i am able to save x number of dollars through preventing the emergency department visit, that versus what I'm investing upstream in the community health workers, uh, etc. So that's sort of the the, the 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 next journey is how do you actually? Because um, I think in academic environments, it's it's much easier and is structured in a way to be able to do controlled trials, and obviously with drug development, but in real life, you have to do things and then figure out how to measure it because the need for health care for somebody doesn't stop and they show up and you have to provide it.
0: Yeah, and it is changing, too. And it's
1: changing. So, so that's sort of the, the next level. And we had the opportunity to do this via a CMS-based study, Center of Medicare and Medicaid Services. There was a five-year program that um, we had the opportunity to be the North Texas hub for. But this occurred over the last five years. And guess what happened in the middle? COVID happened. So the whole okay. program was, you know, we're, we're identifying individuals with who needs, we're screening them, referring them for social services, and by doing that, it helps reduce ED visit, emergency department visit, and hospitalizations. Great. COVID happened behaviors changed, like people avoided care. So was it our intervention that we're doing that resulted in reduced, or people were staying at home and not going to use services? So now we
0: have another variable to consider. Right.
1: So how do you do it? So one of the things, in the, we, we leveraged the, the no-die patient concept, so we're able to take an individual that started to be engaged into this program at, let's say, January of 2020, and find a digital avatar in the community, another individual that looked exactly like them. From their clinical complexity, they had whatever comorbidities, whatever disease, where they lived, what their social economic status was, gender, race, age. So we matched them with an individual that used services at the same time. And now, one-to-one, we're able to track them during the same time period. So then you do that across a thousand, you know, 10,000 individual it. and you scale it. So now you have an individual that you intervene on. Then you have individuals that you don't, but they go through the same life journey. They're dealing with COVID as it's happening at the same time. And you're able to then tease out some of these external factors that are just Happening, so that's sort of uh, one of the sort of another examples, sort of getting to a whole different level of sophistication to measure impact, and we're able to demonstrate. So actually, um, we're able to, to publish this as one of the first pillar publications in the industry that demonstrated that by doing these. Upstream intervention, it did end up reducing healthcare utilization from a very specific ROI and impact perspective, and it's encouraging because again, there's a question of how much do you need to invest upstream, and does that produce downstream effects that you're hoping to see, you know, which changes behaviors. Changes behavior. Yeah, and I think you know the other part was that we, I always believe that we can do a lot with data. But at some point, we still need to talk to people.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is, this is, right. such a, this is so much behavioral science behind it because yeah. what people are willing to share about their health and how they lead their lives is very different oftentimes than what they're actually doing. That's right. And, and I think what you were talking about earlier about going into people's homes with your parents when, uh, as physicians, the observation that you can make in real time is very different from reported data. And it's actually quite similar to what we do in many of the CP, in the CPG world, where we go into people's homes, call it ethnography. We go into people's homes and look inside their pantry, their refrigerator, and, and that is data collection as well, because what people say is not necessarily what people do.
1: That's right, and there's a whole science behind that because asking the right theory. questions, or how do you do observational studies, and how you translate that qualitative into meaningful insights. There's a whole science behind that. That again, I think we need to learn from other industries to figure out how do we bring that to healthcare.
0: So your team also works with SMU students. I want to bring it back home. I'm curious as to what you are doing with the SMU student body that is at Parkland at PCCI working with you.
1: Yeah, and and this is another area that I'm very passionate about. Um, Not only sort of we have the opportunity to focus on helping those that serve the most vulnerable populations, but I also think about how do we offer individuals an opportunity to advance uh, in their career? Um, Because I always felt fortunate that I had those mentors, I had those opportunities as I was in my family was was struggling when we came to the United States, that they contributed to my, my success. Um, and one of my all-time mentors, Michael Sachs, um, who uh, I had the opportunity to work with at SG2, and he founded that, uh, that that company, and then he ended up being a board member at PCCI. He unfortunately passed away a few years ago. Uh, but one of his passions was healthcare innovation and also advancing women in the industry. So took that concept, and we actually, in partnership with SMU, created a summer internship program focusing on advancing women in data science and we've been doing that now for five years um, collaborating with SMU, we bring students across not only the, the North Texas A geography, but uh, nationally as well, and it's very focused. It's a it's a small group of eight to ten each year, but they work on real problems. They work with real data. They work alongside our data scientists and our clinicians. They understand
0: the real challenges. They
1: understand the real challenges, and I think that's what we get so much value out of that because we feed off of their energy, their passion, uh, but also they walk away with something that I think they have a much better appreciation.
0: and we're very appreciative that you have our students there giving them the exposure to real-life application and connecting that to all the concepts and frameworks and uh, academia that they're learning
1: it's sort of so that has been super rewarding and uh, looking forward to continuing that
0: so talking about mentorship you know the first time i met you and really my whole family's met you by now my husband's met you my my son's met you and he's very inspired by your passion as well The first time I met you you and I I walked away from that meeting thinking, you know, here's a person that is very passionate about serving the underserved residents. And I'm curious about what type of legacy would you like to leave?
1: That's a big word. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Ted Lasso, and I've just uh, watch, uh, watch all the shows. And one of the things that I, I really liked, particularly how it ended, uh, hopefully this is not a spoiler for anybody, but talk about uh, it was not the, the, the Lasso way. Uh, I hope that what I leave behind is what is the PCCI way, uh, because that not only helps bring innovation in really meaningful ways to organizations that serve the most vulnerable, an area that's not always the best funded, um, but brings it in a way that's scalable, brings it in a way that others can take it and apply it to make a difference. And to be able to prove that innovation actually, if we can do it in environments that are even more challenging in real life, that actually can provide a path can provide hope, can provide future careers for individuals that actually spend more time and focus these areas, because I think this is a perfect place to innovate. Um, And hopefully this uh, grows to be able to be used across the country. If it can be used internationally, uh, even better. But uh, we're starting small, and hopefully we'll define what that PCCI way is. And to me, that would be fantastic.
0: Leaving the world better than you found it. And that's just a wonderful way of um, leaving us with a lot of great insights and thoughts. And I'd love to take the opportunity to summarize it. And please feel free to jump in if I've missed anything. But what I've heard you say, I've heard you say a lot of different tenants that I think are going to be very helpful as we think about healthcare and the the advancement of healthcare as you're describing it. Uh, but what you have left us with are Couple of things that, that, that um, really rise um, above. The first is your personal belief that to effectively deploy value-based care and sustain it, we have to focus on health in addition to healthcare, And that is a very promising way of thinking about health care. Uh, the second, you talked a lot about personalization of care and, and really finding that 360 degree view as we had before. Uh, when we were, when some of us were growing up and having that personalization of care that is relevant to our lifestyle so that we can sustain, sustain it over time. And lastly, leaving the world better than you found it. I think that is uh, such a phenomenal way of thinking about your job as well as the future. So thank you so much for coming to SMU and giving us your time and leaving us with all of these uh, Extremely holistic uh, ways of thinking about healthcare. So thanks for sharing it.
1: Yeah. Oh, thanks so much for having me.